coming up on this week's podcast. For some people, when the shofar blast happens, whether it's the yearly shofar or the final shofar, it's going to be a blast of, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Like when you've gotten caught doing something, and there you are, red-handed. But for others, and I hope my dream was an indication of this, is that there will be excitement. When they hear that blast, it's going to be the invitation to finally come home. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. Well, we're talking about Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah, as you may know, is part of seven Jewish feasts, the, the seven original Jewish feasts that are given to the Jews from the Torah. Um, Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of the new year. It comes from two words, Rosh, which means head, Hashanah, the year. So it is the head of the year. And there are really seven feasts. There are these three feasts in the fall. There are four in the spring. The four in the spring is the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes Passover, the Feast of Passover, as well as the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days later is Shavuot, or the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Here in the fall time, we have three right back to back. So one week after the other, you start off with Rosh Hashanah, with the celebration of the new year, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and then uh, followed by Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. You may think, well, what about Hanukkah? Well, Hanukkah is a celebration that was added later on, but it's not in the original seven celebrations, but that is celebrated in December. And then you have Purim, of course, which is God's uh, provision and deliverance of Israel from the hands of evil Haman in the time of Xerxes and in Hest- and Esther. I thought you guys were going to hiss when I said Haman, so I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> Um, so Purim, which is celebrated in February, March time frame. So this is Rosh Hashanah. It's kind of like the Super Bowl of Jewish holidays, if you will. It is a time of celebration, but it's also a time of seriousness. And this morning I want to talk about each of these feasts, because you may say, well, Justin, you know, if I was to go to like 10 churches somewhere in this area down the road, I can guarantee you, and I might even be willing to put money on it, that nine of those 10, at least nine out of those 10, are not talking about the Jewish feasts. And that might be true. Here at New Hope Chapel, we do because we think they're important. It's part of who we are, our our kind of uniqueness as a church. And I think they're important for four reasons. And we'll talk about those four reasons today. Why did God give the Jewish people the feasts? And I think there are really four reasons to them and things that we can glean and learn from understanding each of these feasts. But today I'm going to focus specifically on Rosh Hashanah. The first thing I would say about these feasts and the reason God gave these feasts to Israel is because it's an opportunity to worship and acknowledge God as the creator and the king of the universe. And so Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of God's creation of man. Not just the creation of the world, but specifically the creation of man. And so this time is a time of celebration and recognizing that God is that creator. You can't take God outside of the feast. I mean, I guess it's sort of like if we were to take God Uh, Jesus out of Christmas, but it sort of loses its meaning. It becomes this kind of cultural celebration where we give gifts, but nothing super meaningful behind it. But at its core, it is a celebration of the Lord. 
Rosh Hashanah is also known as the Feast of Trumpets. And not just any trumpet, specifically a shofar. The shofar is a ram's horn. Well, why a ram's horn? Why not like those nice brass trumpets or silver trumpets or anything like that? Why particularly do we have to chop off the horn of a ram and use it as a trumpet? Well, it stems back from the time specifically of Abraham. And if you recall the story of Abraham, Abraham uh, was told to sacrifice his son, his unique son, his son of promise, his son that was given to him, to him and Sarah, even in their very, very old age. And God, was, and God told Abraham, he says, get, get up in the morning, take your son, go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. He wanted to test him to make sure that Abraham truly saw God as first place in his life and not this great son of promise, this wonderful gift that he had. So the next day, Abraham took a servant, took Isaac. They went up to Mount Moriah. Right at the base of the mountain, Abraham leaves the servant behind and says, we will return. Kind of significant, maybe, of Abraham's faith. And then he takes his son. Now, his son's a pretty bright boy. And he's carrying a a bundle of sticks. And he looks to his dad and he says, Dad, I see everything here for a sacrifice, except I don't see an animal. And Abraham says something very interesting to Isaac. He says, God will provide the sacrifice. And depending on how you read the Hebrew, it could even mean God will provide himself as the sacrifice. Abraham takes Isaac. We know the story. Puts him on the altar. He's raised his hand. He's about to slay his son, his wonderful son, his son of promise, the son that would become uh, everything in his inheritance. And right as he's about to slay his son, God says, stop and points his attention to a bush. And there in the thicket is a ram caught by its horn. So the ram's horn, the shofar, represents God's provision. God's provision for Abraham. God's provision, in a sense, for all of Israel. Because if it weren't for that, that ram, and barring some miracle, there would be no Israel. And so God provided through the ram. The shofar blowing is very unique. There's a unique pattern to it. There's, um, and, and each type of, of uh, trumpet sound has its own unique name. So I figured what we'd do is we'd go to uh, the way me <laughs> and uh, kind of like so far here or there. <laughs> maybe they'll make one you know for the PlayStation or something like that we could all practice without embarrassing ourselves with real instruments um, there, there might be <laughs> there's always an app for that mark <laughs> um, so you heard the different sounds. There's three sounds in particular. There's that long first blast. There's the second blast that's a brr. There's that second blast that brr, brr, brr. Otherwise known as the let's go cap sound, right? And then you have the brr, 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 you know, that one. And then you have the last one, brr, at the end. Well, why that, you know, each of them are very significant and they have special symbols behind them and metaphors and everything, which we're not going to totally get into except for that last one. 
That last one, that last blow with the, with the, the note that um, goes up at the end is a call to attention. It's a call to attention that our hearts be turned to the Lord. Because this is the celebration of Rosh Hashanah where we recognize God as creator. We have to have our hearts turned to the Lord in repentance. And so, in a sense, it is a sound for Israel to turn to the Lord. If you've ever been to a Muslim country, you no doubt hear a sound that goes on many times throughout the day. The call to prayer, the drone, that sound that comes from uh, their, their towers, of prayer towers, that calls the Muslims to a time of prayer. In a sense, that, that sound is a sound of unification in their religious efforts. And here is sort of a similar parallel, that here is a call for the Jewish people to come to the Lord, to reconcile themselves with the Lord, to repent, to be turned to the Lord, and to recognize Him as Creator. One of the um, things that they do in Rosh Hashanah is a thing called Tishkal, or sorry, Tashkel. And in, and in Tash, Tashik, sorry, um, it is the celebration of God's forgiveness. And the way they commemorate this, very, very neat, they write uh, on some pieces of paper. They all go to the river, they rip up these pieces of paper and toss them into the water. water. And this is because of Micah 7.19, which says, you will hurl all their sins into the depths of the sea, which is this word, Tashlik. So this is the celebration of Tashlik. So Rosh Hashanah is the celebration, and just like the Jewish feasts have this component of recognizing God as Lord, they also have a component, and I think the second reason why God gave this, these festivals to the Jewish people is because it brings together a community. God was bringing together, building a nation, building a society. And in some senses, we see that in our, our own country. We have celebrations, and we have Memorial Day, we have July 4th, we have football, I think, does a wonder in, in bringing us together as a nation bringing us together as a culture, and sometimes dividing us as well. <laughs> 9-11, even, even a, a somber remembrance, has an ability to bring us solidarity as a country. So too does do these festivals bring Israel together in solidarity as a nation. We see this with the celebration of um, Tashlik. Another thing that they do during Rosh Hashanah is they eat apples dipped in honey. And when they do this, they say a special prayer, which I think we should uh, say together. This is kind of reminiscent of Passover that we do here. And we'll say it first in Hebrew and then in English. And we won't make fun of anyone's Hebrew because we'll all stumble through these words. And then we'll, we'll, we'll say it in English. There's two parts. There's this one and then one that comes together. So let's say this together. Baruch hata Aronai Eloheinu Melech Halam Borei Pri Haetz. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the tree. You may recognize some of that Hebrew from Passover, because there's just one word that's different, and that's the last word, because we say, blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine during Passover. But here, it's who creates the fruit of the tree. And here's the second part they say. So we'll say this together. Ready? Yehi ratzon Milfaneka Arunai Elohenu Veelone Avotenu Shtakailesh Alenu Shana Tova Umtuka. 
May it be your will, Lord our God, and God of our ancestors, that you renew for us a good and sweet year. So a wonderful prayer that they say together, and it brings together this community known as Israel for the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. Now, the third part of uh, these Jewish feasts, so we said that the Jewish feasts bring a recognition of God as, as the king of the universe, and an opportunity to worship him. Secondly, they bring together a culture, a people, in solidarity. And the third thing is, and if you ask, and if you research, and if you ask rabbis, they will all tell you that there is a messianic component in all of these feasts. These feasts were, are, are to point to, and in some way, will be fulfilled by the Messiah. Now, we as believers in Jesus understand that, that Jesus is the fulfillment, and I'll explain a little bit of that in just a minute. But all of them, all of them will tell you that, that God is going to set up his kingdom on earth, specifically on the Temple Mountain, Mount Zion. And he's going to reign there with his people. And they will be his, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. That that time of the Messiah is coming. And specifically, they look at Jeremiah 31, which says, See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, so that I rejected them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. So the Jewish people look to this time, this coming of the new covenant, this time when the Messiah will, will usher in this reigning of the Lord there in Mount Zion, and his people will be reconciled to the Lord, and they will have the new covenant. We believe that has already happened. And specifically, I think that these, these Jewish feasts were not feasts just to celebrate or anything like that, but that they were markers of the time of the Messiah. So that when the Messiah came, and anyone will tell you this now, so that when the Messiah came, people would see the Messiah, and they would say, oh, that makes sense. Because I see this, and I see this, and I see this, and I see this. I want to take a look at the book of John. We're going to look at John, especially in a couple of weeks when we look at Sukkot. But the book of John, I think, John does a marvelous job at subtly bringing to light how Jesus fulfills these feasts. Specifically, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to look at John chapter 1. Genesis 1, which we all know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Check out the parallel in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Could it be that John is making this parallel? That in the very first words of Genesis... That in the very first words of Genesis where we're told that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, 
Remember, it's a celebration of Rosh Hashanah where we acknowledge God as the Creator. Could it be that John begins his Gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and then tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the One and only begotten. Well, I think that's true. I think maybe John is making a mention here, but I don't think this is definitive evidence of how Jesus fulfills Rosh Hashanah. It's only one disciple saying, Jesus fulfills Rosh Hashanah. I think we need some more. To that, I want to turn to a a clip, a video. Now, last Easter, my my family was out of town. They left me alone. And, uh, And Sab and Clayton graciously invited me over for dinner. And they showed me this video, which was, I was like blown away. It's called The Star of Bethlehem. It's a documentary. I don't know if you've all seen it. But I, I would highly recommend it. We're only going to see kind of a news clip of this documentary um, and what it, what it says. But it's a, it's a guy named Rick Larson, just an ordinary guy. He wants to find out what the Star of Bethlehem really is about. Take a look at this. A new DVD documents Rick Larson's discoveries that came after a decade of studying the mysteries of the Star of Wonder. A number of experts consider his conclusions the most plausible in a subject full of opinions. Larson has analyzed what heavenly signs in the book of Matthew brought the wise men to Bethlehem. He found nine testable points. If the Bible has the nine characteristics and I find something in the sky that has, you know, eight of them, well, it might be interesting, but it's not the star. And it's, it's got to line up with scripture. It's, it doesn't do the job for me. Using astronomy software, he then searched the ancient skies for matching events the Magi would have seen in the time around the birth of Jesus. That era was from 3 to 1 BC. But first, who were these mysterious wise men? One ancient Jewish writer speaks of them. And he describes a particular school of Magi, he calls it the Eastern School. And these Magi he praises. He says these guys understand the natural order and they're able to explain natural order to others. And, and we, they were, according to Philo, probably what we, we might call something like proto-scientists. Consider the Magi seeing Jupiter, the king planet, in the night sky one mid-September evening of 3 BC. This is Jupiter. The smaller object is a star. It has a name. It's called Regulus. That's the same word root as our word regal. The Babylonians called Regulus uh, Sharu, which means king. This close proximity is called a conjunction, and there were three of them. Larson shows us what it would have looked like. Jupiter passed Regulus, changed its mind, stopped and went back for a second close approach. That's two. Passed Regulus again. And that's three. This took place in the constellation of the lion, associated in ancient times with Israel. And the Magi, attuned to such proclamations in the sky, might well have started thinking that a mighty king was to be born in Israel. But there's more. Following Jupiter into the sky is Virgo the Virgin. And she's clothed in the sun. And she has the moon at her feet. Sound familiar? That's from the last book of the Bible. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. And she's described as pregnant. Theologians recognize this passage as John having a vision of the Virgin Mary with Jesus in her womb. When you see that, in the sky, and realize that John wasn't just recounting a vision. His vision involved astro- uh, you know, actual astronomical events. That really got me. When, when I saw Virgo rise, clothed in the sun, with the new moon birthed at her feet, it stunned me. That new moon marks the onset of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the day God is said to have created the world. 
Larson says the evidence supports this day as the time when the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus. So is there another sign? Nine months after that first conjunction, nine months, <laughs> the gestation period of a human, um, we see Jupiter and Venus come together to form the brightest star anyone alive had ever seen. That's mid-June of 2 BC, again near Regulus in Leo. This was such an unusual conjunction that I can tell none, none of your viewers have ever seen such a conjunction because none have occurred in the 20th century. I mean, they're that rare, extremely rare. We'll stop it there, but it's such, an, it's such a fascinating documentary. But you heard what he said, that the sun, that the, there was the, the constellation Virgo clothed in a sun with the moon at its feet, and that occurred during Rosh Hashanah. And there's, always, there's, a, there's some that believe that was the time of the conception. There's some that that was the time of the actual birth. But nonetheless, perhaps there is this connection with Jesus. And why not? You know, Jesus' life, his major events in his life all correlate with the Jewish feasts. Why not his birth? Why not his birth? But take a look at this next clip from that documentary. Now I'm going to show you guys something. It's one of those things that just, that just they really affect me, I have to admit. I mean, I, I get the purple on the back of the neck. You know, sometimes these things put me in tears. Maybe they do you too. I don't know. I want to show something now that's going to make you just marvel at God. I want you to picture in your mind the geometry of a lunar eclipse. It's not really very hard. You just have the sun and the earth and the moon, they line up. The earth gets between the sun and the moon and blocks the light. Okay, so they're lined up. When you look at a lunar eclipse from earth, the moon gets dark. But if you were to go to the moon and look back, what would you see? You'd see the earth coming between you and the sun, wouldn't you? You'd see a solar eclipse, wouldn't you? Okay, because that's the reverse. So I'm going to do something now that I think you'll find interesting. We're now on the moon. You're standing on the moon. You're looking back towards the sun. And that's the earth. I want to show you now the moment of Christ's passing on the cross. That's 3 p.m. That's Aries, the paschal lamb, the ram, the constellation Aries, at the very instant of Christ's death. show you again. He is expiring right now. And the heart of the ram is put out. Jesus, your paschal lamb. Isn't that fascinating? Here we have um, the ram, right? The, the constellation Aries. And uh, you know what's neat about, if you watch the video, the, you'll also see that the eclipse occurs it's a full moon, right, because it's Passover. It occurs at the foot of Virgo, the Virgin, there if you're watching it from Jerusalem. But here he's showing us what it looks like from the moon, that the eclipse is happening there in Aries. Perhaps a connection with the ram, the reason why the Jewish people celebrate the shofar. Perhaps it's God's way of telling us, just like he told Abraham, Abraham, you do not need to sacrifice your son Isaac. Here is a ram. Just like he tells us, you do not need to suffer for your sins any longer. I am your Passover lamb. I am your substitutionary sacrifice. So it is clear. Jesus, the point of these festivals is also to point us to the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, fulfills these tremendously, remarkably. 
And one of the neat things is, is that when he fulfills these feasts, just we talked about last Easter, he fulfills multiple feasts at the same time. We talked about his fulfillment of Yom Kippur within the context of Passover, just as he's fulfilling Passover. We talked about how he rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, which is why Paul says he is the first fruit from among us, the first to rise from the dead. Well, the fourth thing that these feasts do is they point us to the end times. Eschatology, the, the study of end times, our Bible study here is um, studying Revelation, the men's Bible study, and it's fascinating to me. It's so complex, and many times I walk away with more questions than I do answers. But the Jewish people will tell you that there is a, a concept of not only the, the messianic rule and the coming of the Messiah embedded in these feasts, but also the coming of God's reign. So the tradition for Rosh Hashanah is that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. It is the day when God will judge, the, he, will, he will have his final judgment. For one, those who are written in the book of life, and by the way, the book of life is not just a concept found in Revelation. Moses, in the time of Moses, we hear of the first time of the book of life. And the book of life is for the righteous. Those whose name have been etched in the book of life, they will rise to everlasting life with God those who are wicked to everlasting suffering and death and separation from God. But those that are kind of in between will have 10 days to repent before Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the final sealing, if you will. Well, I don't know about all of that, but I'm drawn to a couple of things that Paul says, and I'll begin with 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul talks about an event we call the rapture, in which the church is caught up, with the Lord Jesus. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Sorry, let me get this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. There's, two, there's something that's echoed in both of these passages, and that is the shofar blast, the trumpet blast. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's very specific and said it's going to be the last trumpet blast. Could it be that last trumpet blast, that, that thing that tells us to turn our hearts upward to the Lord, will be a time when we are turned upward to the Lord? Perhaps that is the answer. We don't know for sure, but I'm, I, I'm thoroughly fairly, thoroughly, <laughs> convinced that the rapture will occur on Rosh Hashanah. And why not? You know, why not? And, um, but I'm, you know, I'm not really into predicting end times things, but it's really neat to see some of these correlations. And I remember Gary saying, um, he said, if you want to know when the coming of the Messiah, the second coming will be, just watch Israel. Watch what happens with Israel. I mean, there's a lot of things that have happened in the last 60, 70 years that would not, that, that have to happen before 
um, the Lord returns, right? Israel became a nation in the 1940s. And here, you know, here we have Palestine. It was interesting. We were reading Revelation, what, 15, right? Is that what we were on last Tuesday? And it talks about 16 stadia, gives a, a measurement of 16 stadia. And someone mentioned that it's 185 miles, the exact measurement of the land of Palestine. Interesting. Here's Palestine uh, in the UN trying to become a state. And then there's all sorts of talk about imminent war breaking out in Israel. Perhaps this is, t- perhaps this is the time. We don't know for sure. But we should have our hearts turned to the Lord and be ready. And it was interesting, back uh, a few months ago with Harold Camping and his predictions for May 21st would be the day of, of uh, judgment. And I think he changed it, he amended it somehow, I don't know. Is anyone listening anymore? <laughs> but he changed it again. And it, you know what was, ne- what was, what was strange, I, I guess, for the lack of a better wor- word, was kind of watching how people reacted to this. Some people were having parties, and we're not talking like the Holy Ghost type of parties. We're talking about parties because they're like, the world's going to end, who cares, right? And there were some just living out their life. There were some that were, were super consumed in this, and they sold everything they had, and they were like, all right, let's go. And there were some that were afraid. I remember having a conversation in my class, and there was one girl that was afraid. She was terrified that the world would end on May 21st. And I'm like, what do you have to worry about? If you know Jesus, I had, um, I don't like, I, I debated whether to mention this or not, but I had uh, a couple of dreams about um, the rapture. And I don't know, you don't have to read into them or anything like that. I don't really talk about them. I don't tell people about these dreams or anything. But one occurred maybe like two or three years ago. It was right as I was about to wake up, I hear this thunderous sound. And it wasn't thundering, it was clear. No one was awake, and it was this thundering sound that said, I'm coming soon. And I, and I woke up, and I was like, whoa, what did I just hear? It just woke me up. And then one happened a few weeks ago, and it was really, it was really a neat dream. I was in a field, like a, watching a baseball game or something, and um, <laughs> it was the Orioles, and I'm like, take me home, Lord. <laughs> no, it was, uh, but I was in this field, I was watching a game or something, and the field was getting flooded with water, and, and the, it was a sunny day, but the field was getting darker and darker, and then the sun started, and I thought, this is strange. And I remember looking up the sun thinking, why is it getting dark? Is, is the sun going down? Are there clouds? No, it was, the sun was right there, and the sun moved across the sky and had this like tail effect to it, and I thought, this is and all of a sudden, I got lifted off the ground, and I'm flying through. It was the craziest dream in the world. I, mean, I don't know what I had to eat, but <laughs> I kind of want to try that again. But I, I'm flying through the air. And the thing that I, I remember most about where I'm, and, I, and I'm terrified of fights too, but the thing I, that I remember the most as I'm flying through the air is I'm thinking, today I get to see Jesus. And that was the most exciting thing. If, I, you know, if the dream means nothing, if it's just bad indigestion, if the dream means nothing, it was this revelatory moment of excitement to see Jesus face to face. And I'm like, I get to meet Jesus today. This is exciting. Well, you know, the shofar and Rosh Hashanah kind of has two effects. It's kind of like what happens when I call my kids' names. If, uh, you know, my son Xander, he likes to play in the bathroom. He loves to unravel the toilet paper. And I think he's gotten in trouble enough that he knows not to do this. So he's turned to the toilet bowl. And he likes to play in the water, which is 
fantastic. <laughs> he, so he's playing, and, and, and so I'll call his name of it, Xander. And he turns, and he, and he and just, because he knows he's in trouble, right? But then there are times when I call my kids' names, and it's not because they're in trouble, it's because I'm inviting them to dinner. And I think the shofar blast has that effect. For some people, when the shofar blast happens, whether it's the yearly shofar or the final shofar, it's going to be a blast of, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Like when you've gotten caught doing something, and there you are, red-handed. And you, because they will, there will be no excuse. They will know that they have fallen short before God, that they have not turned to the Lord. It's going to be a blast of shame. But for others, and I hope my dream was an indication of this, is that there will be excitement. When they hear that blast, it's going to be the invitation to finally come home. So my prayer is, is that this Rosh Hashanah will turn our hearts to the Lord, that we can worship Him as the creator of the universe, the God of everyone. But if our our hearts are not turned to the Lord, I just beg you, turn to God. When that shofar blast comes, there will be no excuses. You cannot say, I didn't know this or I was afraid to do this. Hopefully, though, that won't be the case. Hopefully, it will be an invitation, an exciting invitation to come home. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.